Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Brother Cousins Podcast. Today, we continue our Take Heed series, studying some sayings of Jesus in the Gospels about things that we need to take watch of or be aware of. Today's episode 80, and the title of today's episode is Take Heed and Be Not Deceived. So, in this particular episode, our emphasis is going to be squarely in Matthew chapter 24, squarely, not squirrely, squarely in Matthew 24, um, in what Jeffrey likes to call the Olivet Discourse. Um, so if you want to follow along or for additional reading, Jesus essentially gives the same information in Mark chapter 13 and in Luke chapter 21, he gives the same warnings about this particular event that we're going to talk about. And so I'm going to, I guess, guys, start out by reading a few verses in the beginning of Matthew chapter 24, what started the conversation, and that'll help us get a firm footing for why Jesus said what he did, why he gives the warnings that he gives, and then we can kind of tease out some of the bits that apply to us today in ways that we can take Jesus' warning and make them um, prescient for us now. So in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 1, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be one left here, one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So guys, I mean, Jesus makes a pretty cataclysmic statement. It's like if you were with a school group touring Washington, D.C., and you go to the, the U.S. Capitol building, and someone on the tour says, you see this place? Um, I'm going to tell you there's going to be a time coming when this whole place is a pile of rubble. And that would probably shock people awake, right? That would definitely be disturbing for a lot of people. I mean, if it wouldn't, the premise for the movie Olympus Has Fallen would be null. And it was a wildly popular movie. Yeah. So, you know, we we got almost a, a sense of that whenever um, that group went to, to Washington here a while back. And um, there was some of those riots and everything. People people were still talking about that, trying to prosecute former President Trump uh, about some of these things. But you saw how just the threat uh, of some of those types of things drove some people crazy. Mm-hmm. And so whenever you, you think of it actually happening, like if somebody claimed that they were actually going to tear that to the ground, I think it would shake some people. Yeah, I agree because it's our national identity is tied really closely to these symbols or these monuments, right? Things like the Washington monument are, you know, symbolic of our national identity and, you know, all these things. And that, that was the reason that the Twin Towers were destroyed, right? Because of what they represented when um, when they were destroyed. It was because it struck a blow to our national consciousness. And what we find here is Jesus doing the same thing. He says, look, I'm telling you that the nerve center of your entire national identity, your spiritual, political, everything is going to be taken down and completely dismantled. And so Jesus immediately had his disciples' attention. 
And then, like, if someone said, hey, Christopher, the 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 Capitol building in Washington is going to be destroyed, I'd be like, when is this going to happen? Right? And how am I going to know when this is coming? And his disciples did the very same thing here. Jared, were you trying to cut in there? So my point was going to be, this was not the first time this was going to happen. This was the new temple, what we commonly refer to as the second temple period. And we see what happened with Israel, Judah, when they were taken out, the temple was destroyed, and they're commanded to go back and rebuild. There's actually a lot of Old Testament scripture pertaining to that idea. And so those that had walked with Jesus that would have been taught the law by Jesus, taught the history by Jesus. And, and Israel was really good at sharing their oral history. These people and their ability to share history orally would amaze us today. If we could get a glimpse of that. So this would have triggered something in their minds of something they've heard about. They've not ever seen. And and probably something that some of them have postulized. What if it happened to us? What if this occurred during our lifetimes? Not unlike what we have done in the church for years and years and years. What if persecution happened? What if this, that, and the other? But Jesus is now telling them it's it's not a what if. This is going to happen, and you're going to see it. And so that, of course, spurs them to their questions. Right. And in verse 3, the 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 questions get asked. It says, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, and that's where we call it the Olivet Discourse, because Jesus was preaching in the temple during the day, and at night he would retire to the Mount of Olives to um, talk with his disciples and rest. And so they came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? That's question number one. Question number two, what will be the sign of your coming? And then question number three, and of the end of the age. And so gaining a firm grip on the fact that verse three contains three questions that Jesus answers as a part of this discourse is vitally important. And it's also vitally important that we understand which of the three questions Jesus is answering when he gives a particular prophecy or teaching in this chapter. Agreed guys. Yeah, I agree with that. So it may seem like we're going to split some hairs as we go through some of this, but it's absolutely important because if we are applying Jesus' answer to the wrong question, it's going to lead us astray, which is exactly the warning that Jesus gives in verse 4. Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. And (laughs) because Jesus like, look, I'm going to give you the answer to these questions, and this is the truth. And the inference here is that people would try to deceive and lead astray his disciples from the truth that he's about to give them. And then he, and yeah, go ahead, Jerry. I was just going to give a real life analogy to this and, and how easy it is to happen. There was a a time that Christopher and his wife, Laura and Rachel and I all lived in Amarillo and we got together and went to a gospel meeting at another town. And we left kind of late because we had friends there and, on the way back, and wasn't using GPS. That I, I don't think I even had a smartphone at the time. I got turned on the wrong road. And I was miles down this road before Rachel spoke up from the back and said, hey, we're not going home. 
<laughs> I, I was headed for a different town entirely. We were trying to get back to Amarillo, but I followed the wrong road sign, got on the wrong path. And so the solution I was going to come to wasn't the solution I wanted. And it's it's a lot like that when we're reading scripture and we're dealing with these teachings that were given 2000 years ago. A lot of times we overlay what we're thinking, we're cruising along, we're thinking one way. I think you and I were having a conversation and, and I just turned too early. And um, that's a, a trip I'll never forget. It's the only time in my life I've ever seen a porcupine, <laughs> but I, I wasn't even supposed to be on that road. And it took way longer to get home because I had to work my way back to find the road that I was supposed to be on. But it, it's important that we keep things on the path and, and we know what path we're following, because that's going to determine where we come out. Yeah. And reality doesn't care about our intentions either. I mean, we, we just, we've got to know it. And Jesus is making an inference here, maybe uh, that if you want to know the truth and avoid being led astray, then the key is to sticking to what God has taught you. Right. We, we've got to stick with what Jesus said. Because Jesus said in verse 5 that there will be people come to deceive. They're going to say, I'm Christ. Lead. And he said that many are going to be led astray. That people will believe these false Christs. And he said that you're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. Um, and Jesus said <clears throat> specifically, don't be alarmed. Because this must take place and the end is not yet. But how often do you guys see people quote... There's going to be wars and rumors of wars before the end comes. But Jesus specifically said that wars and rumors of wars are not an indicator that the end of the world is near. You guys find that ironic? Absolutely. And just a sidebar, and, and I don't, I'll give a disclaimer. I don't think this is what this is teaching here. But as I have looked over this passage prepping for the podcast, it struck me that the quote Jesus gives people will say can be read more than one way. People will say that they themselves are Christ and people will say that Jesus is the Christ and subsequently lead people astray. Now I think he's saying they themselves would claim to be the Messiah. I, I think that's his teaching there, but it just occurred to me every time I've gone through this, that we see a lot of people that claim Jesus existed, that claim he was the son of God. And then, go way far afield of what his actual teachings were. They they try to draw his name in to give credence to what they're teaching, but it doesn't match with what he has said. And so that was just a an interesting thing that just kept coming back to me as I read this. Yeah, that's definitely accurate. Uh, it's, you know, a wolf in sheep's clothing. They, they put on the clothing of the lamb, but they're a wolf. So, um. Then Jesus said, uh, verse 7, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. Um, I've even seen that on uh, an infomercial that was published by um, a, a group that claims to be a Christian group as evidence that the end is near. Like, they they blatantly use this on TV. Um. But Jesus said that this is just the beginning of what the birth pains, a process that will have a particular outcome. Then he talks about tribulation and being hated by all nations, people betraying one another, 
false prophets leading others astray. Verse 11, and then because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. That because the followers of Jesus will descend into iniquity, that some will lose the faith. But he who endures to the end will be saved. So Jesus is saying that all of these things are part of a process, but they are not the end of the process themselves. And I think, I don't know exactly how to go about what we have here because there's, there's so much to unpack. And I guess take it from the top since the death and resurrection of Jesus, there have been wars over and over and over encompassing the known world. Nations rise and fall. Uh, Great nations, huge nations, huge empires rise and fall at the end of world war or the, in the middle of World War One, people thought, hey, this is it because we've never seen war like this. World War Two was the same thing, especially because we had the atom bomb now. Mm-hmm. And, okay, God's going to destroy the world with the atom bomb. Um, real quick recommendation on that. When God destroys the world, it's going to be known that he is the one that did it. Right. When God calls it to a halt, it, it'll be known. That it, it was not man's mistake. We didn't accidentally drop too many nuclear bombs anyway. <laughs> um. But this has gone on and on and on. And every time it's happened, we see these prophets come out, some that take on this idea and try and create a religion behind them claiming to be the Messiah and others claiming that they have spoken or they speak for the Messiah that take on this role of prophet. And I think you hit the nail on the head. Jesus was speaking about a specific event here that was to be the beginning of something specific. And, and I'll just go ahead and say it, it was his kingdom. Right. And the change of the kingdom of God in the world as it fully broke forth on the world. And it was not now Israel. And this was a demonstration of God removing Israel as his nation to, as in, in co-demonstration of those that would claim the name of Jesus and follow him being his people. Right. Yeah. For more info on that, y'all can check out our gospel episode, which I think was maybe the last episode of 2022. It was December, 2020 or 2022. If y'all want to check that out. But yeah, we talk about that change of powers in that particular episode. You know, Jared, I'm glad that you just came out and, and said what he was talking about there because and, and just in case any any of our listeners are, are sitting here wondering, like, where in the world were they getting this stuff? Um, the parallel, all of that discourse in Luke 17, that's the way that it phrases it. In verse 20, it says, now when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, see here, or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. And then he starts talking about all of these different things. He, he uses some of the same imagery that is mentioned there in Matthew. For as lightning, it flashes out of one part of heaven, shines the other part under heaven. So also the Son of Man will be in his last day. The language is extremely paralleled here. Yeah. But the question is framed slightly different than that of Matthew 24, which says it, it's talking about the same thing. And so Jared's hitting the nail on the head there. Yeah. Yeah, 
Completely agree. And Jared, just for clarification's sake, so we know that that Peter turned the key to the kingdom in the lock on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, right? That was the initializing of God's kingdom on earth. But what you're saying is there is there is a difference between what happened in Acts 2 and when God's kingdom came to full maturity and Israel was basically taken out and God's kingdom through Christ's church fully came into its own. Is that what you're saying? Okay. Thank you. That, that sets me up beautifully with what I wanted to hit on with that lead in. It was difficult because I want to get right to this point and there's a lot of setup needed. So this change was occurring and, and the Jews of the day, could feel it. They, they could tell what Jesus had going on. It was a change. It was not what they were used to. Matthew 10, you know, they, they feared being put out of their place because of the radical teaching of Jesus, that God was now accepting all people. We see Peter open the kingdom to the Jews in Acts 2. We see him open the kingdom to the Gentiles in Acts 10 right. with a similar type event going on. We see the writer of Hebrews later talking about that covenant, and he says it's waxing old and ready to pass away that which is passing away so and and i'll just say this is somewhat controversial i I don't want to argue about it this is part of why i believe hebrews was written before 70 a.d it was passing away because this event had not occurred yet israel was not completely wiped out beyond the point of reconciliation or uh, rebuilding as it were until this occurred because with one stone not being left upon the other, there was no rebuilding the temple the way they had done before. Their records were gone. The family genealogies were gone. And in in their ability to maintain purity and being Israelite the way they, they felt like they needed to. And it was a sign from God, as Jesus clearly shows here in this teaching, that it is the about the gospel of his kingdom. And, I think you you really did a, a good job describing it. There's the birth pains as this thing comes into being. And what we have seen ever since is the church continually maturing. Right. And in that process, sometimes we have to be chastised. And this is something we talked about pre-recording. But when the world gets to a certain point, that Romans 1 type look where morality societally has decayed so bad that even little ones are not protected anymore. God begins to clean the world up and he always does that beginning in his own house. You can see that as you go through the prophets, God cleans up his house and he pronounces judgment on heathen, what we would consider heathen nations, Gentile nations. Um, And that's what's going on here. Christ is describing the fall of Jerusalem and the fall specifically of the temple as his church begins to mature and you know this is going to also sound controversial to a lot of listeners because of the fervor in our society right now our desire to fight with one another but the world as a whole is a lot better place than it was when jesus was walking in it it's it's difficult even for people like christopher and i that are minded like christopher and i because we see the evil around us. But when you see largely in in a lot of societies, the rights of women for a long time, the protection of children 
um, the end of slavery in, in lots and lots of places in the world, the ideas of justice kind of being universal in the point where we, we created the Hague, international justice. Mm-hmm. The world has continued to improve, and it's because of the influence of the kingdom of God upon the kingdoms of men. Christians being willing to hold the world to account, and that's what's happening here. I, so I don't think that's a really long way of saying I, I don't think the church has yet reached its maturity, but it is maturing, and the world is having to mature along with it because we hold the world accountable to the standard of Christ, and his kingdom holds the kingdoms of men accountable to that standard as well. Wow, those are some really big ideas. I you know, I don't know that I've ever really thought about all of those things in the same scope, but I think you may be onto something. Well, and and now I have got a far field of our topic and point. So I apologize. <laughs> no worries. Uh, you know, we needed something to talk about next month anyway. So there we go. <laughs> uh, but um yeah, so we find this instance where Jesus is going to describe the birth pangs of one power of heaven, right? That was God seeking the redemption of humanity by Jesus Christ through the people of Abraham. And once that is accomplished, then God makes a full end of, he makes a full end of the nation of Israel because he's kept his promise to David, kept his promise to Abraham, and he's done. So he cleans house um, before he starts to deal with Rome, right? Which is the next big power of heaven to be shaken because it stood up like the nation of Israel against the kingdom of God and God smashed it, right? So um, we see here that Jesus is describing this process and he says that a lot of people are going to be led astray during that. In verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And I think that that's probably the 70 AD period that we're talking about whenever the Roman general Titus surrounded Jerusalem and leveled it, essentially, uh, and destroyed it in such a way that it had never been destroyed even by Babylon. Right. Yeah. So, and I'd like to get Jeffrey to weigh in on this with his think so's, because I'm, I'm going to say, I agree with you, Christopher, and in keeping this in context, there's a thought by the disciples. They're they're looking for the end of all things, the end of Mm -hmm. the age. They're looking for Christ to return. Right. And the consummation of his kingdom where all things are set right. Not this process of reconciliation, but an immediate reconciliation. And I don't think that's what he's giving them the answer to here because he he continues in this context, still talking about the temple in Jerusalem and his kingdom and what we see happen. Because I I know people will ask, well, how do you justify or, or reconcile that with the gospel will be preached, proclaimed throughout the world? Well, what we see happen is Christ told his disciples to stay in Jerusalem until the kingdom came with power. Mm-hmm. And they did. And and largely they, I mean, these people sold their homes and other places to stay in Jerusalem. And then Paul began to wreak havoc on the church. And so it kind of spread a little bit, but the main body stayed in Jerusalem. But as we drew closer to 70 AD, the church remembered what Jesus had warned them about. 
and they began to scatter. And everywhere the church went, it spread like wildfire. Mm-hmm. And so it was being preached to the whole world because Christians were having to scatter to avoid this persecution as they were warned to do. They weren't wrong in avoiding this persecution, but everywhere they went, the gospel went with them and lives were changed. Societies were changed and the kingdom of God ran up and butted heads with the kingdoms of men because it was holding them to account. You know, Jared, I guess I'm unclear on exactly what you want me to weigh in on, on this. I I really just want to leave room for disagreement um, in case you don't read that the same way. I, I don't want to seem dogmatic that I think the interpretation that I have come to of this is the only right one. Oh, I think that you're probably referencing some discussions we've had on the phone. Um, you know, I, I have said that my my thought process about this passage has, has changed over the years. You know, I have shifted from, you know, the well, this is talking about the end of days when Jesus will return to, you know, this is exclusively talking about um, the destruction of Jerusalem to now uh, I'm maybe like an 80-20 view on that, where I would say it is most directly speaking to the destruction of Jerusalem. However, um, there's some vague references to what it will look like with the end and the coming judgment. And, And that's based on just some of my studies of the way that the prophets speak and, you know, different levels of God bringing judgment on different nations over the course of time, that each time we see a, a more clear picture of what it looks like for God to bring a full condemnation. But I think most directly in in this context, he is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. And I think it becomes even more clear as you continue on in the text in Matthew chapter 24, because it starts to speak of things like the abomination of desolation and it it cites the prophet daniel and whenever you go and dig into some of what the prophet daniel was referring to and you put that in the context of what's going on at 8070 the abomination of desolation very simply is whenever the roman guards were involved in the temple where they would put the the roman golden eagle on the outside of the temple and even within the temple that there was essentially this idol worship now going on because of how heavy the roman government was being around the jewish people and around the temple and that was the abomination of of desolation that's referred to here which is again pointing to basically cleaning house on the Jewish people and leading into the Roman people. If that makes sense. It makes a lot of sense to me, Jeffrey, you know, that this idea in verse 14 of the gospel of the kingdom would be preached to the whole world as a testimony. And then the end will come. I think we need to leave a little room for some hyperbolic language. Like I don't literally think that Jesus means that, the entire world heard the gospel of the kingdom and then the end came. I think what it's true, what Jared was saying a minute ago, that the church spread from Jerusalem whenever uh, its destruction was nigh and they spread the gospel wherever they went to the known world. Do you think I'm on, on base there? 
I, I think so, but I'm also going to bring in the birth analogy. So in verse 8, it, it talks about that the beginning. So it places a timestamp that this is the beginning of the birth things. Mm-hmm. And then you get to verse 14, and he says that the end will come. And again, people generally jump to the end of time when Jesus returns, and that's what that's talking about here. But it could be that this is talking about Again, if we're thinking about a maturation process, my mind is stuck on the events of a baby coming since we now have a seven-month-old, and <laughs> it's very fresh in my mind. Right. When the labor pains start, that's just the beginning. Yeah. And then I get, and I'm not saying I experience them. I watch Hannah experience even more severe pain than the initial birth pains um, for that baby to even be born. And then you get into a more maturation stage where week by week, obviously a baby grows and becomes more mature. So I think within this context, there's some timestamps that specifically is pointing to some of the ideas that Jared has communicated previously. Yeah. And to be clear, I think the end here in verse 14 is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. That's my opinion on this passage. I think I, I agree. Okay, because it was following verse 15, he says, so when you see the abomination of desolation, right, the Roman standard in the holy place, then he says, get out. If you're in Judea, go to the mountains. If you're on top of your house, jump off the roof and get out of the gate. Uh, If you're in the field, don't even go to the end of the row and grab your cloak. Get out. And Jesus said, that is the sign that your time is up that this thing is fixing to happen, get out. And um, secular history, I think, bears out the fact that when Jerusalem was compassed with armies, that the Christians got out. They listened to the words of Christ. They were not deceived. They remembered his word, and they were able to escape what Jesus said was um, the most terrible destruction that had ever been and would ever be in a place. Yeah. And whenever you look at the context of Luke, Christopher, uh-huh. it, it elaborates on, on some of those different destructions. It, it says in verse 26, um, and it was in the days of Noah. So it will also be in the days of the son of man. They ate, they drank, they married wives. They were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, it was also in the days of Lot. They ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But in the days that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. So what those all have in common is that they had been warned. The destruction was going to come and it was going to be obvious and it was going to be swift. And they have had a warning to leave. And those who took heed were saved and those who didn't were destroyed. And I I believe in this particular context, we're not talking about a a spiritual salvation, but rather a physical salvation where Lot physically fled Sodom. Noah physically got on a boat and the people here surrounding or who were within Jerusalem needed to physically flee in order to be saved from the destruction where everything was going to be turned upside down. Yeah, completely agree with that assessment. And that's, I think those are the threads that we need to pull out of those accounts. You know, the analogy that Jesus is trying to uh, establish there. 
Um, well, I think this is a good place to hit. This was a major event for the people of this day. This was, I mean, 9-11 type happenings. Yep. World altering. And, and I think that's evidenced by the fact that we see this written about throughout the New Testament, that people were concerned and, and they largely did what we do today and link this to the return of Jesus. And really what they were looking for was the destruction of Jerusalem. And I think it needs to be underscored just how significant this event was, that an entire group of people on their own got up and got out because they knew what was coming and it utterly changed the face of the world, starting at Jerusalem and, and going from there, which again, you know, if nothing else, just the catalyst for the church spreading like it did as far and wide as it did. And as fast as it did. Right. I think in a very practical way, Jared, uh, one, it was an act of compassion uh, of Jesus toward his followers. He didn't want them to experience that. One, he needed the church, which was having a tendency to stay there like he commanded them to do in Acts chapter 1 or the, the end of the Gospels, end of Luke's Gospel. Uh, he needed them out because they were they were the heralds of the kingdom. And so they their job was to survive so they could spread the word. And so it's kind of a multi, uh, multi-faceted uh, purpose for the church getting out but get out they did and i'm thankful um and jesus admits that it's going to be difficult that he hopes that that you know mamas didn't have babies because it's it's going to be hard or just hope it doesn't happen in winter uh, not that it's going to be without some tribulation it's still going to be difficult here um and then we get back to more of the don't be deceived language of verse 23. If anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, don't believe it. False Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. He said, see, I have told you beforehand. They say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. They say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. Whereas the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. For wherever the corpse is, there will the vultures gather. And I think Jesus is saying here that if someone tells you something different than what I've told you, don't believe them. And that that word rings just as true today as it did then. That there are many people who, to your point, Jared, wear the name of Christ, but teach things that are contrary to the clear word of Christ. And we and he says, don't be deceived because people are going to be deceived. Yeah, this has actually become a really popular topic amongst religious Twitter. And it is astonishing to me. And, and I will say I, I see a lot of the word differently than a lot of people. Um, I, I just have that ability to look at things differently um, and allow myself to do that. But what has become a tagline for certain types of religious people is you cannot say the Bible is clear on X, whatever X may be, any topic. And 
I, I think they would largely say this passage falls into that category. You, you can't say the Bible is clear here when I think we, we can indeed say that the Bible is clear in places. And, and they do that to create confusion. Yeah. Because there's a teaching. They want to use the name of Christ to say, see, he's here and then teach something contrary to what God wants. And, and we can do that when we say, well, the, the Bible's really not clear about this. And so we create chaos where God has created peace and truth. And it, it is just astonishing to me that that line works for people and how we do that by saying, and a lot of what they do is they, they go back to the Greek text and say, well, in the Greek, well, okay, but, what you're telling me is God had the ability to get his word to us in Greek, but he did not have the ability to make sure it got translated purely in English in a way that we can understand. And that's going to sound weird to people that talk to me because I, I love to go back to the Greek and, and I love to study words and, and do that kind of nerdy stuff. But at the end of the day, my faith is in God to present a clear message everywhere he wants it presented, including in English. Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's completely consistent to say that if the word of God was supernaturally revealed, then it can absolutely be supernaturally preserved. To Agreed. me, the, the whole scripture is a is a miracle in and of itself. So I, absolutely. I don't think that's a stretch in whatsoever. But I think what we need to remember is when we say the Bible isn't clear what we're really saying is that God is a bad communicator. Yep. That's it. <laughs> and I'm or not... that he doesn't really care. He, that, though he has had a standard and we can see over and over and over again, him holding man to a standard that flows out from the very nature of his being that he has now denied that standard and doesn't care anymore, which is equally an, an unreal stretch. Right. Yeah. If, if God is set up a way for us to know him through his word, and then failed to set up a mechanism to preserve said word so that we could reach him via the system he set up. It would be inconsistent with God's very nature or something. Yeah. And, and I'm going to jump in here and, and bring it back to this aspect of being deceived. I think that within these contexts of the Olivet Discourse, it actually points to some people who may have be saying wanting to be deceived is probably too strong of a phrase willingly but, deceived but they were willingly deceived mm. and um you know you you look at again i'm going to come back to to luke's version here because it just phrases it a little bit differently than than matthew 24 and maybe it's just because i'm a little bit more familiar with luke 17 um but he said that the days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the son of man and you will not see it and they will say to you look here or look there do not go after them or follow them so he, it's talking about what you just read mm -hmm. um just a few minutes ago christopher but then he continues and he says for as the lightning that flashes out of one part under heaven shines to the other, other part under heaven so also as the son of man will be in his last day but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation and then he goes into that kind of discourse about Noah and and those types of things. But there, there's a couple of things that I, I think need to be pulled out of here. And that's number one, 
that the destruction of Jerusalem would bring such great affliction and persecution that the Jews would greatly desire a deliverer. That one would come in the character in which they had expected with the Messiah and would deliver them out of the power of their enemies. And I think we see that in Matthew 24, verses 20 through 25. But Jesus warns them that in this time, false Christs would appear. And he says, don't believe them because you will not see the Messiah in those days. The fact is, is that the Messiah had already come and had been there among them. And they didn't see it. They didn't recognize it. But instead, they killed him. And so in the day of the second coming, people will see the Christ. He will descend from heaven with a great noise. People will not be wanting, those same types of people will not be wanting to see the Messiah because it's going to be so obvious that he was there, the lightning flashes and and all that type of imagery. Um, There's going to come a point when it is exceedingly obvious. God is a great communicator, but at that point, it'll be too late to flee. And that's where I, I see that there's some some imagery here that does point to the ultimate coming of, of Jesus. But what he's saying about this particular instance is that there there's a warning sign with the destruction of Jerusalem that would give people time to flee. And that in those times, people are going to want the Messiah. And so they'll be easily deceived by these false teachers that will be coming forth. Does that make sense? I think so, but I have a question for clarification, Jeffrey. In, okay. In um, verse 27, you know, for as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Basically, he's saying that uh, it'll be unmistakable. So are you saying that in the day when this cataclysmic event happens, that it will be a coming that is that clear? Or are you saying that in the day when the destruction of Jerusalem happens, they will look back on when Jesus came and walked among them, and then it will be clear or neither of those? Uh, It's the former. Um, I I think it's pointing to the fact that, number one, when Jesus returns, it is going to be exceedingly obvious, but it's going to be too late. Gotcha. Um, that some of the distinction with the destruction of Jerusalem is that they have had their warnings mm-hmm. and there were going to be signs that were going to be pointing to this. Um, but it's not going to be that way with the return of Jesus. So it'll be instant. And you probably can't hear that. I just snapped, but I did. I did um, hear that. It'll be, it'll be instant. Um, whereas with the destruction of Jerusalem, it wasn't as instant as what the coming of Jesus would be, but it will be exceedingly obvious when Jesus returns. Um, it'll just be a lot quicker and there will be no way of escape at that point. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. And I think there's an element of warning here that we see throughout the Bible and Ecclesiastes seven is the one that comes immediately to my mind where we are given the teaching that, it is better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting because this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to his heart. There's a teaching here that transcends the context of the ultimate judgment of God. And I think Luke kind of hits on this point when he says one of the days of the Lord, there is a day coming that will be the ultimate 
day of the Lord. And that will be when Jesus calls this all to a halt and judgment will occur. In the meantime, we have these days where judgment occurs on a scale within the world that we have the chance to look at, to see just like we see when someone passes from this life and lay that account to our heart and see God's judgment upon the world. And we, we can call things to mind like what Peter writes about in his two epistles and what John records in the revelation about the things that are coming. And, And I think one of the things that we can take from this as we begin to kind of wrap these thoughts, if you guys are ready, Mm-hmm. is that Jesus didn't want his disciples to sit and watch Jerusalem be destroyed. The destruction was coming. They needed to avoid the persecution, but they still had work to do. We see a similar thought process in Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians, where Paul is writing to the church and they see this destruction coming. They're thinking into the world type destruction and they quit their jobs and become lazy people. I mean, they're, they're gossips. Right. But the church has work to do. And so there's parables of Jesus where uh, the the parable of the um the workers one being found lounging about because he didn't think the master would return quickly. Jesus expects to find us find us busy and Regardless of what happens, and, and this is actually something, so we almost made it through without talking about C.S. Lewis, and now I'm going to do it. <laughs> but C.S. Lewis talked or wrote about living in the atomic age and how people lived in fear of a nuclear bomb being dropped. And he said, if it drops, if we're going to find our end, let us find our end behaving like human beings. And And he worked a lot of Christian morality into that thought process. So while we need to heed the warnings of God, we need to not be deceived about these end time prophecies and these people. Hey, that Jared, claim, yeah, I, I want to jump in right here real quick, um, because I think that there's a very important passage that I I really don't want to over overlook. And it is referring to some things that you're talking about right now um, in Luke. In Luke's account, in verse 34, he says, I tell you that in the night there will be two men in one bed. The one will be taken and the other will be left. Two women will be grinding together. The one will be taken and the other left. Two men will be in the field. The one will be taken and the other left. You know, Many try to use this passage to support the idea of the rapture, but this stems from thinking that this passage is talking about the second coming of Christ. Right. But as we've already talked about, it's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. And so we've got to interpret that passage differently. So what Jesus means by this is that there were people who lived together, who worked together, that some would remain and some would be destroyed. Right. And though those who remained would be destroyed rather, and that others would be delivered because they took note of what Jesus was saying. They weren't deceived. And they fled and they did what they were supposed to do. And and that's why he says, consider the stories of Noah and Lot, because there were some who took heed of the warnings and they were delivered. And then there were those who did not and they were destroyed. And so that message is what he's trying to push to people. And the message is listen to God's warning and take action because you're number one, not going to live forever. Um, but the the warning is there to take heed. 
man, that's a Does great that makes sense. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And yeah, the fact that we we need to understand, as we said in the beginning, the question that's being asked so we can understand the question that's being answered. Um, so in verse three, you know, to recap the questions, the disciples wanted to know, when will these things be? One, what is the sign of your coming? Two, and essentially, what is the sign of the end of the age? And Jesus told them when these things would be. And he gave them multiple signs for when the the temple will be destroyed. But as to the third question, and when, you know, what will what will be the end of the age? Fast forward to Matthew 24, verse 36. Jesus said, but concerning that day and that hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the son, but the father only. Right. So I, I believe that Jesus is making a distinction here. And he says that when that day that you're talking about, nobody knows. I'm going to pull back in some imagery that's used in, in Luke's account. He makes the distinction. He's, and he says that the coming of Jesus would be like a lightning strike. Mm-hmm. No one knows when and where a lightning strike is going to take place. It is fast. It is quick. It is, and, and I'm going to say this with a little bit of liberty, seemingly random, but it is obvious. Whereas the other, you have the signs that point to it. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yep. Yeah, it makes perfect sense to me. So, you know, Jesus gives an example of, we, we can know when this is going to come. This is a, a process like a birth that has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And you can kind of tell we're close. But with a lightning strike, there's no warning for a lightning strike. It's bang. It happens. And that's what Jesus is answering that question. And Exactly. And, you know, when Jesus gives the signs for when Jerusalem would be destroyed and his kingdom would come, there were things that people needed to do to be, to prepare because they had to take action to survive, to spread the word. But in the day at the end of the age, there's nothing else to do. There's no, Jesus is coming back today and Hey, it's time to say your prayers. Absolutely not. There's not going to be any second chances when Jesus decides he's going to return to judge the living and the dead, there'll be no more work for anybody to do. And so the best advice Jared could, you know, to, to reiterate his CS Lewis reference is be ready and live a life of godliness and don't be deceived into thinking that you're going to have time to make good whenever you see the warning signs, because there will not be a single one. Well, that just about does it for today's episode of the Brother Cousins podcast. We appreciate everyone listening. We know that you can listen to anything in the world that you want right now, but you chose to spend the last 57 and a half minutes with us, and we really appreciate it. Uh, if this has been a blessing to you, if there's someone that you know that needs the, the word of Jesus to correct their understanding on this passage, feel free to share this with them. And um, you know, prayerfully, we hope they'll consider it, and we hope that we've also considered it, so we're speaking the truth on this, but I think we uh, have a pretty firm grip on it. Um, if you uh, could also do us a favor by giving us a like, share, review, or comment wherever you listen to podcasts, that'll help get the word of the Brother Cousins out to more people who could enjoy the content and get people into God's Word 
and get God's word into people. So I think it's my turn to pray. And we'll catch you next week as we continue our series on the take heed sayings of Jesus. So guys, let's pray. Our gracious Lord in heaven, we pause to give you thanks and praise for the majesty of your word that reveals your mind to us so that we may know the truth and that we can be set free by that. We thank you that the word of Jesus in this case is so clear that we can avoid being deceived if we'll take heed. Father, we are thankful that you are sovereign among the nations and that you have worked your perfect will through history uh, to bring us to this particular point in time where we can enjoy the freedom in Christ that we enjoy and that the world has been transformed by the dominion of your son in the hearts of men and women who love and serve you. Father, we pray that as we speak with our friends and neighbors, we would be busy and not idle living in a way that you would command so that when you return suddenly that we are ready to meet you, not with fear or shame, but with gladness and with anticipation. Father, we pray that you would give us the courage to serve you every day and that we would be ready to greet you whenever you come back to judge the living and the dead and that, Lord, you would give us the affirmation of being a good and faithful servant as we depend upon your grace for the resurrection of this mortal body. Father, we are grateful for Jesus' life and death on the cross on our behalf. And we pray all these things in his name. Amen.